point is that the nationalist cult that the Ukrainian state has nurtured since uh, 2014 is the cult of Stepan Bandera. And who is the Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Hello and welcome to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Myself and my co-host Nora Baz friedman are here today with our colleague Ali Abunima. Thank you, Ali, for joining us. How are you doing? Very good, Asa. It's always great to be on the Electronic Intifada podcast, my favorite podcast. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Um, so today we are going to have a bit of a roundtable discussion about Ukraine and everything that's been happening in Ukraine the war in Ukraine, the geopolitical fallout, and the general political implications of the war and the aftermath of the war. Um, so we thought that a good place to start would be to talk about the recent speech of the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, to Israel's Knesset. So what Let's did you start- make of it? Let's let's first uh, let's go to a little clip of that. Just some just some highlights, and then and then we'll talk about it. Ukrainian and Jewish community always were, and I'm sure will be, very intertwined, very close. Now I want to remind you the words that you know very well. Golda Meir said, "We want to live. Our neighbors want to see us dead." We are in different countries. We are absolutely in different conditions. However, the threat is the same for you and me, for for you and us, total destruction of people, culture, state, and even the name of Ukraine. I have the right to draw this parallel and this comparison in our history and your history in our wars for survival and the Second World War. Listen to what Kremlin is saying. Simply listen to that. They even use such terminology that were mentioned then when the Nazi party was marching through Europe and wanted to destroy everyone and everything to subjugate peoples and to destroy us and you completely without even a word. They we're calling it the final solution for the Jewish question. You remember that, and you'll never forget that. But you are hearing what there, they are speaking these words again, the final solution in respect to us, to the Ukrainian question, to us. That was spoken out loud. This, what Moscow is saying, Without the war war against us, they would have not have ensured the final solution for their safety exactly in the same way and it was spoken 80 years ago. Everyone in Israel knows that your anti-missile defense is the best. It's very powerful. Everyone knows that your arms are very powerful. Everyone knows that you are great. You know how to stand for your state interests, interests of your people, you definitely can help our people. One could ask and ask 
why we cannot receive arms from you, or why Israel did not implement powerful sanctions against Russia uh, to affect Russian business. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when uh, Russia first invaded Ukraine, um, I remember there was this huge, it's a month ago now, uh, this huge uh, outpouring of, you know, instant reaction from, uh, I think, a lot of well-meaning people saying, you know, Ukraine is is being, being treated like Palestine. It's being invaded. Uh, its people are resisting. Uh, you know, this is an illegal invasion occupation, just like what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. And uh, there's certainly some merit in, in those arguments. I, 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 for one, think anyone whose country is being invaded, uh, no matter what the reason, has the right to resist that invasion. You know, Ukrainians have that right. You'll get no argument about that from me, uh, even if, uh, w you know, we want to talk about the causes and background to this war. But what's been consistent all along, and we see this in Zelensky's speech, is Ukraine's insistence that Ukraine not be identified with the Palestinians, but that Ukraine be identified with Israel. And Zelensky makes this very clear in the Knesset speech that, you know, we, Ukraine, are like you, Israel, and our enemies are like your enemies. Therefore, you know, on the on the Israeli side, it would be the Palestinians, and on the Ukrainian side, it would be the Russians. Therefore, you know, the Palestinians are the Russians, as far as Zelensky is concerned. And Zelensky is not the first one to say this. This has been consistent from Ukrainian officials since even before the uh, Russian invasion. But during the invasion, we saw similar statements from uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, who said how much he admires the Israeli army and how the Israeli army is his model for how to defend uh, Kiev. And uh, we've constantly been seeing Ukrainian officials pleading for Israeli weapons and praising Israeli weapons without, of course, ever mentioning that, um, that those Israeli weapons are tested on Palestinians against defenseless Palestinian uh, civilians. And uh, Zelensky, of course, uh, alluded to the historic role of Ukrainian Jews uh, in uh, Israel, in Palestine. And uh, I, I, I knew a little bit about that, but I learned a lot more uh, reading a recent piece uh, by Joseph Masshad that was published in Middle East Eye that I think we can uh, link to. And uh, he points out that really the first uh, Zionist colonists to go to Palestine as early as the 1880s were Ukrainian Jews. And the first uh, Palestinian uh, peasant revolts against colonization of their land was against Ukrainian Jewish colonists. So really, the historic role of Ukraine in the dispossession of the Palestinian people goes back uh, more than a century. Uh, Masad also points out how Odessa uh, which is now part of Ukraine, but was uh, an Ottoman town called Haji Bey uh, on the shores of the Black Sea, was conquered by Russia in the 17, uh, uh, in the late uh, uh, 18th century, I think the 1790s, 
Uh, it was conquered by Catherine the Great, the Russian Tsar uh, or Tsarina, and was then uh, renamed as Odessa after, uh, you know, it, she was inspired by Greek mythology to rename Haji Bey as Odessa. And Odessa then became uh, a major center, the, the preeminent and earliest center of Zionist thought and agitation. So, uh, for example, uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky, the founder of the so-called Zionist revisionist movement and the um, sort of key ideologue that inspires uh, today's Israeli settler movement and the Likud party of Benjamin Netanyahu, Jabotinsky was, uh, came from Odessa. And of course, Hovevei Tzion, the early Zionist settler movement was founded in Odessa and, sent, and, and founded the first Zionist colonies in Palestine in uh, the 1880s and 90s. So uh, all that's to say that, you know, these kind of simplistic uh, equations of Ukraine is Palestine and Ukrainian resistance is the same as Palestinian resistance are ones that are explicitly rejected by Ukrainian leaders from Zelensky on down and uh, very complicated when you look at uh, the actual history, you know, Ukraine's uh, intertwined history with the colonization of Palestine and the, the dispossession of the Palestinian people. And of course, not to forget, of course, the role uh, more recently that Ukraine played in um, American uh, imperialism, Ukraine sent the third largest uh, military contingent as part of the US-led illegal invasion uh, of Iraq. So uh, I think all of this points to there being just such a lack of context and knowledge in so much of the discussion we see, the sort of flag-waving uh, discussion we see that, that, that just eliminates all of this history and context. And I think hampers us from really understanding how we got to this point uh, and, and then what may happen as a consequence of it, both uh, you know, in Ukraine and, and globally. Yeah, I mean, just, um, you know, here in the so-called progressive Bay Area of California, um, you can't go, you know, 100 meters without uh, seeing, you know, Ukrainian flags outside people's houses. There's, um, you know, on the one of the overpasses on the nearby freeway, there's this huge giant banner that says we stand with Ukraine and Slava Ukraini, um, which as Asa has pointed out is actually a, a slogan that has fascist uh, history and undertones. People have this very knee jerk reaction, um, uh, you know, of, of supporting Ukraine because the corporate mainstream uh, media has told them that this is the correct position without any questioning, any context, any historical analysis at all. Um, you know, what what can you say about the the way that this narrative has been pushed from, you know, from this this context of knowing what we know about how uh, the media has historically treated Palestinians and the connection between Ukraine and Palestine? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, some, someone on Twitter said this, and I can't remember who it was, but the phrase they used stuck with me, 
um, that you know the liberal response is that they're born outraged yesterday. And that's the approach to every single issue that's put in front of people that, yeah. that like, you know, people who couldn't point to Ukraine on a map a few weeks ago are suddenly, well, the only important thing is that Russia invaded and that and that yeah. has to uh, shape our entire understanding mm. and response uh, without having any understanding of what has happened in Ukraine in the last eight years, the role of the United States in fomenting the coup in 2014 that brought uh, neo-Nazis to power in Ukraine, yeah. neo-Nazis who dominate the Ukrainian state. Uh, yeah. They may be, uh, you know, it's a point that that uh, you, I've heard you make, Asa, in, in other uh, podcasts, that Nazis don't need to be a majority to control the state because they control the state through fear and terror. Mm. And even Zelensky, the president, cannot defy the Nazis without, uh, you know, risking his own life. They've openly threatened his life. But these Nazis like the Azov Battalion, the Aidar Battalion, C-14 and other Nazi groups that were instrumentalized and supported and used by the United States to foment the coup uh, so that Ukraine would abandon its neutrality and uh, move into the NATO camp. And I think many people have seen, uh, and if they haven't, they really should see the lecture by John Mearsheimer from 2015. Uh, I talked about it in an interview I did uh, with uh, with Rania Khalik a few weeks ago that, that I, I wrote up for EI. I'm sure we can link mm -hmm. that too. Um, but Mearsheimer explained in 2015 how the crisis in Ukraine and he says this today, he, he maintains this position, that the war is the fault of the United States. It's an unpopular yeah. position, he says, because, you know, it's, it's one that casts blame on the U.S. And who wants to do that in, in this atmosphere if you're trying to make a career in American media or politics? But he says that, uh, you know, that, that really the, the U.S. push starting in 2008 to... Uh, say that that Ukraine and Georgia were going to become members of NATO, not Georgia, the southern U.S. state. Georgia, course. the country. <laughs> Georgia, the country in the Caucasus. <laughs> Georgia, the former Soviet Republic. Yeah, Let's remember, Georgia that was part of the Soviet Union. And the point he makes is that Russia, and this is now, I hope, well known, although there are still people who deny this well-established history, that at the end of the Cold War in 1989-1990, the explicit condition for German reunification, for, for the Soviet Union acquiescing to German reunification, was that NATO would not expand one inch eastwards. That was the, the, the terminology that was used that was memorialized in countless diplomatic notes and records and conversations and so on. And Despite that, Russia absorbed, uh, you know, it, it, it acquiesced to two waves of NATO expansion in 2004. And then again, uh, I forget uh, exactly what, uh, what years those were. But then in 2008, uh, and those previous waves basically absorbed most of the former Warsaw Pact countries, the countries that were previously aligned with the Soviet Union, and the former Soviet republics of the Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And then 
in 2008 when um, NATO uh, said that uh, you know Ukra uh, that Georgia and Ukraine would become NATO members, or the door was open to them. That's when Russia really drew the red line. And what Mearsheimer predicted uh, accurately in 2015 was that the U.S. pushing Ukraine to become a NATO member and using Ukraine as basically cannon fodder in a proxy war with Russia would lead to Ukraine, in his words, getting wrecked. And it was really pressure. Yeah. And people are very mad at Mearsheimer for being correct. But I, I mean, I, I think I think we we should thank him. And I don't necessarily like these analogies because you know you could argue, well, Ukraine is a sovereign state and, and they're free to say they want to join NATO or, or or the EU or whatever it is. But NATO is also free to say no. That would not be um, wise. Uh, we think that NATO should be neutral. Uh, sorry, we think that Ukraine should be neutral. And you can just imagine, others have made this analogy, what would the US response be if Mexico joined an anti-American military alliance with, say, China, and started stationing, uh, you know, missile systems on, uh, you know, in Tijuana or in uh, Ciudad Juarez or just across the border from the United States. We know that the Monroe Doctrine, the American Monroe Doctrine, has led to the United States invading uh, numerous countries in the Western he Hemisphere precisely in order to maintain its sphere of, of influence. And right now, the Solomon Islands, a country that uh, in the Pacific that suffered horribly under British colonialism, and you know, the, the British rule in the Solomon Islands was as brutal there as anywhere in the world uh, is as now as an independent state is freely negotiating a security uh, treaty with China. And Australia and New Zealand are complaining and saying, oh, this would be a threat against us. I mean, how far are the Solomon, Solomon Islands? <laughs> the Solomon Islands, how far are they from Australia and New Zealand? But Australia and New Zealand, two members of the five eyes so-called five eyes, the you know, Anglo-imperialist uh, uh, alliance of the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and who's the other one? I, I think Iceland, I can't remember who the other I is, but uh, you know, it, it's one of these, these uh, states. And, and Australia and New Zealand are saying this is illegitimate, that a deal with China would be a threat to us. So we're told on the one hand that, you know, uh, Ukraine is completely free as a sovereign state to pursue NATO membership, and Russia doesn't have a right to say a thing about it. But the poor Solomon Islands uh, isn't even allowed to negotiate a security arrangement with China without Australia and New Zealand getting up in their faces. And Australia saying, now, we have to beef up our, um, our uh, 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 military spending in order to, to you know, to, to meet a a threat from China. And I mean, this thinking is delusional. I mean, the, the population of Australia is 25 million people. The population of Shanghai is 26 million people. The population of Beijing is almost the same as the, the population of Australia. So what mm. kind of world 
do these countries want to live in where everything is defined by a zero-sum game all the time and they, they just can't seem to get along with anyone else. So I think that's the bigger context in which I, for one, see the situation in Ukraine and which I think is going to have tremendous, I mean, many people are talking about this and obviously it's hard to predict, but I, I do think that there are a sort of, there is tremendous potential geopolitical fallout. This is really going to reshape the world. It's one of those moments like 9-11, I've said this before, that is going to reshape the world in many ways. But I, I think this is potentially much more profound and serious even than uh, the fallout from 9-11. Yeah, I mean, these states have nuclear weapons, um, you know, the U.S., Israel. Uh, I just I just don't I don't understand how people aren't more terrified at um, the, you know, especially the liberals and the Democratic Party pushing for more and more war, um, not diplomacy, not de-escalation, but you know, but but more yeah. aggression and, and, and yeah, I mean, pulling us at that, the brink. That's the remarkable thing, Nora, if you think about it, that that uh, there is no push from the so-called West for a negotiated political settlement yeah. to the uh, problem, the long-standing problem between Russia and Ukraine. This is not new. This, this is this started. Uh, in 2014, but before 2014, yeah. because the you know the, the the history in that part of the world is that these lands were part of Russia, and Ukraine is a country that is divided between a Russian-speaking population, a Ukrainian-speaking population. There are divided loyalties, divided aspirations for the country, and in such a country, you cannot impose one vision on. Uh, an entire population that, that this is the thing that really yeah. exasperates yeah. me about all these ukrainian flag waving liberals is that um you know i don't claim to be an expert in ukraine but i i know for you know it, it's obvious to anyone who's been paying attention who, who just reads a bit of news about what's been happening in the country at least since 2014 there's been a civil war ongoing in the eastern part of the country um, a large minority of the Ukrainian population sees itself as Russian and declared their own independent republics. And this is what uh, Vladimir Putin has now recognized. Um, and, you know, it's it's convenient, it's sort of convenient start to the war, to view the war as just starting now. Um, obviously, you know, there's it's, it's been an escalation, but, you know, this this kind of um, head in the sands moment, it's, it's very uh, convenient for all these liberals who, have this i mean it's kind of a, a russia gate derangement syndrome is the way i see it is that they, they're they're so obsessed by this narrative about um putin being this uniquely awful dictator um and this uh sort of uh i guess rachel maddow brain syndrome of just um seriously the the, <laughs> the uh you know official enemy that you're supposed to hate all the time right 
reflexively and, but, without without any questioning without any introspection without any analysis i mean just yes. just take you know take an analogy you know many people will know that i have long concluded or advocated that you know there should be a single state in historic palestine in which israeli jews and palestinians and others live in equality in in a in a democratic decolonized state with with you know restitution for all under no circumstances would i suggest that you know israeli jews need to be forced to speak arabic and that hebrew should be banned and that you know what whatever it is but that's the equivalent of of what i see as this kind of extreme new ukrainian nationalism that that's being promoted i i believe of course that in the context of an of equality, of democracy, of decolonization, of course Hebrew should be a, a, a language that people speak and are educated in and are free to use and should have equal status uh, f uh, for the population yeah. that, that speaks Hebrew. As and yet the have, Ukrainian as government has passed laws outlaw yeah. outlawing the, the use of um, Russian language in public in certain public as, contexts. As has, as, has Isra as has Israel as part of its nation state law, yeah. so-called nation state Absolutely. law passed in 1918, it removed the official status of Arabic. So, you know, that so, uh, I mean, that again supports Zelensky's uh, uh, claim it's, that it's evidence israel. in support of zelensky's claim <laughs> right. that ukraine and israel should be identified with each other but the point is i'm not advocating anything that i i don't see as relevant in the context of, of palestine you can't uh uh force a single nationalist idea on a population that is so deeply divided in its view of history and its uh, cultural and political and national aspirations you have to find some other way and then especially so when the brand of ukrainian nationalism that has been aggressively promoted since 1991 when ukraine uh, uh, became independent when the soviet union fell apart but especially since 2014 has been the most extreme right-wing form of nationalism you can imagine yeah. And let's let's talk about this for a second, yeah. because um, what we have in Ukraine, you know, we've all seen these discussions online where, uh, you know, people are saying the Azov Battalion, this this uh, group that was part of, um, you know, the, the right wing coup in 2014, the US backed coup, that they're Nazis, that they use SS symbols, that they openly, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, hero worship Hitler and 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 all of that stuff, and and what you'll see people say, well, the Azov Battalion, it's just like a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand people. You can't, you know, as if just a few Nazis is okay. But all right, let let's take that for the sake of argument. Well, it's just a few Nazis. That's not the point here. The point is that the nationalist cult that the Ukrainian state has nurtured since uh, 2014 is the cult of Stepan Bandera. And who was Bandera? He was a committed ideological Nazi, Western Ukrainian nationalist Nazi, who openly uh, collaborated with Hitler 
And the Banderite organizations, the organization he founded, the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, were active participants in the Holocaust, in the murder of thousands of Jews, of, thousands, of Poles. Uh, and these were committed Nazis, very committed ideological Nazis who were tools of the SS. And in fact, and, and then uh, members of Banderite's group were directly placed under the, the control of the SS, were attacking Jews, carrying out the pogroms for the Nazis and all of that. And then they went off and formed another group called the Ukrainian Insurgent, uh, Insurgent Army, known by its Ukrainian officials as UPA. And um, the UPA went off and they were so brutal and savage to the Jew Jewish population in Western Ukraine, that Jews went to the Germans for protection. The, the Nazis were, pr were protecting Jews from the UPA. And today you see the UPA flag in pro-Ukrainian marches everywhere in the West, in Chicago, in, uh, in Toronto. In fact, uh, Christia Freeland, the uh, Canadian deputy foreign minister was photographed with the UPA flag and then she had to, uh, and she posted it on Twitter herself and had to take it down. And uh, we see in Chicago, the, uh, the Illinois Ukrainian uh, society, because there's a fairly large Ukrainian diaspora in Chicago and Illinois, they have a day to honor the UPA. They have an annual commemoration to honor the UPA. It's on the uh, wow. Ukrainian uh, American society or whatever the name of the organization is that, that operates in Ukraine, uh, sorry, in Illinois. And so in order to whitewash, you know, in order to make this palatable, this present day cult of Nazis, and to, to make it compatible with this simplistic uh, liberal media story of, you know, the evil Russians and the good Ukrainians, you have to hide or whitewash the history. And so that's, that's what I, I wrote about recently, about how literally, you know, Hitler's accomplices, Stepan Bandera, who's... Uh, images all over Ukraine now, huge banners, statues in every major city. Kiev renamed its Moscow Avenue that leads to the Babi Yar uh, Holocaust Memorial. They renamed it in 2016 Stepan Bandera Avenue by an overwhelming vote of the Kiev City Council. Uh, there are statues, huge monuments uh, to uh, Stepan Bandera in um, in uh, in uh, Ternopil in the west of Ukraine, in Lviv, in other cities, and in order to normalize this, you have to whitewash Bandera. And the piece I wrote about uh, wrote for EI uh, earlier this month was about uh, how uh, the Anti Defamation League, uh, a, a premier. Israel lobby group that masquerades as a, an organization fighting anti-Semitism put out an article whitewashing Bandera and saying, oh, well, you know, the Banderites just made a tactical, it was just a tactical alliance with Hitler. They didn't mean it. They were only murdering Jews because it was tactical. I mean, as if that would make a difference, but of course, it wasn't just tactical. 
These were ideologically committed Nazis. And that's who the West, the so-called West, uh, the democracy-loving West are supporting today. The political heirs of Stepan Bandera and Hitler's accomplices. And let, let's just be clear. I just want to be clear about one thing. We're not saying, I'm not saying that, you know, all 40 million people in Ukraine are Nazis. Of course not. What, we, what I'm saying, and what is the fact, is that the political forces sponsored by the West, who today dominate the Ukrainian state, are Nazis or uh, people who worship or, or uh, you know, have this cult of personality of Stepan Bandera. It's not just a few Azov battalion people. This is a cult of Hitler accomplice Stepan Bandera that is at the heart of 2022 Ukrainian ultranationalism that is being fully supported by the so-called West while they crow about democracy and, and uh, uh, human rights and apple pie and all of that stuff. What do you make of the role of the President Zelensky in all of this? Because one of the things I've noticed, and I'm sure you both have noticed as well, when posting on social media, especially about Ukraine and the role of Nazi groups in the Ukrainian state uh, having influence of power over the Ukrainian state or being able to kind of, I mean, hold them to ransom, as it were, like the Azov Battalion. When you post about those kind of things, I've seen quite often the really worrying response of how can Ukraine be Nazi? The president is Jewish. What do you what do you make of that? And and there's a, there was a comment in Zelensky's speech the, the, to the Knesset, which kind of stood out to me. It was sort of subtle, but he when he opened his address, he said the Ukrainian and Jewish communities have always been uh, very intertwined, very close. Now, considering he is both Ukrainian and Jewish, what do you make of that kind of dichotomy that he's setting out there? Well, it, it, it sort of suggests that somehow Ukrainian Jews aren't really Ukrainian, mm. or that they, you know, it, it reminds me of when Donald Trump was saying to American Jews that, you know, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is your prime minister, that somehow yeah. Jews' loyalty is or should be to Israel. So it strikes me as a somewhat anti-Semitic comment. Yeah. But you know, this, this talking point that, oh, well, you know, how can Ukraine have a Nazi problem when its president is Jewish? I've seen, uh, you know, none other than Katerina von Schnurbein, the EU's so-called anti-Semitism coordinator, making that point on Twitter. In other words, using Zelensky's Jewish identity to whitewash the Bandera cult, to whitewash the cult of the Hitler accomplice who murdered uh, and whose, whose acolytes and whose supporters murdered so many Jews in Ukraine. Uh, and, and to me, that's Holocaust, it's Holocaust revisionism by the so-called anti-Semitism coordinator of the European Union, who's mm. admonishing us, us day and night, never again, and we remember and don't forget, and we have to fight Holocaust revisionism. And these very same people, you know, April is... is uh, uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and these same people who are whitewashing Nazis in Ukraine and whitewashing 
Stepan Bandera and his, his murderous Hitler accomplice supporters in a couple of weeks are going to be, uh, you know, giving us pious lectures about never again and we have to learn the lessons from history. The mind boggles, the mm -hmm. mind really boggles. But, you know, the, the, the claim that, oh, well, J Zelensky is Jewish, so how can there be a Nazi uh, problem in Ukraine? It's much like saying, well, uh, Barack Obama was black, so there's no racism in the United States. There's no mm -hmm. white supremacists, there's no neo-Nazis, there's no police violence, there's no, uh, you know, systematic inequality, there's no uh, new Jim Crow, there's no mass incarceration, because... America elected a black man. And in fact, that was the liberal fantasy of yeah. Barack mm. Obama. That absolutely was the liberal fantasy of Barack Obama that, you know, we've redeemed ourselves and we've overcome our difficult history because we elected a black man. But it's no more true in the United States than it is in, in the context of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if the Proud Boys or the KKK were officially appointed to be a unit of the American military in the same way that the Azov Battalion has been made a unit of the Ukrainian military since 2014, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be a next level of concern. I would be, yeah, I would be very concerned about that. Um, and, you know, you'd have to say, yeah, there's, there's some, there's a, there's more than, you know, yeah, there's a Nazi problem in every Western country in a lot of ways, but in terms of, you know, there's these groups that exist and yes, sometimes they try and infiltrate police forces and uh, the military and so forth. But the wholesale adoption of an actual Nazi group, you know, when I first, when I first started uh, writing about the Azov Battalion in 2018 and we wrote that, um, we published that article that I did, about the Azov Battalion. One of, our, one of our most read articles, by the way, at least yeah. in recent years. Yeah, um, and it's it's getting a lot, it's going, coming back up at the moment quite a lot recently because of what's happening in Ukraine and, and how um, Israel was helping them with um, Tavor rifles for the Azov Battalion. Um, I put in the headline and I described them as neo-Nazi neo group, but I, you know, as our colleague Maureen said Maureen Murphy said recently there's not really anything neo about it they're just a Nazi group because there's a continuity yeah there you know there's a continuity between as you described as you described at the beginning of this conversation the history of the Holocaust and Nazi groups and um kind of satellites of of uh, and puppet regimes of Hitler's yeah Hitler's I regime yeah, and you know, it's just, it's so, of course, I mean, we, we know, and it's something we've, we've all written and talked about a lot, the weaponization of, uh, of the idea of anti-Semitism almost exclusively as a um, weapon against the Palestine Solidarity Movement, where even the mildest criticism of Israel will yeah. get you branded as an anti-Semite and a Nazi, whereas... The, and the same people like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League that, that allegedly exists to defend Jews, 
against anti-Semitism is busy whitewashing Hitler's accomplices. It's infuriating. It is infuriating. And I think this is exactly, I think you're right there, Ali. I think this, this gets to the heart of why we've, been covering Ukraine at the Electronic Intifada over over the past few weeks because it gets to the heart of the hypocrisy about um, the weaponization of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, Loki, a British rapper who sings Long Live Palestine, is branded by the Israel lobby as an anti-Semite, but then literal Nazi group in the Ukraine uh, branded by those same pro-Israel groups to be freedom fighters defending Mariupol in eastern Ukraine, supposedly, you know, and it's like, in order to, it's like, in the years I've been writing about the Israel lobby, you you kind of have to, you get a crash course in how this works, and you have to kind of educate yourself about the the true history of anti-Semitism, and so we know about all these things that have happened in these terrible things that have happened to Jewish people in history. And so therefore it's astonishing. You could say perhaps not completely surprising to see the hypocrisy here and how the, the reality of actual real current day anti-Semitism and uh, racism is being kind of whitewashed by these very same groups. So it just, it just, it's the pure, to me, it's kind of the pure hypocrisy, I suppose. Absolutely. And it, I mean, all that hypocrisy is blown open now. I mean, you know, we all saw it in the first days and, uh, and weeks of this, this war with, you know, the, the, the racist description saying, you know, oh, Ukraine is civilized and European, unlike Iraq, unlike Afghanistan, right. unlike other countries that have been subjected to. It was a real masks off moment. It was a real mass of moment. And also with respect to, uh, you know, the BDS boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And and you had that uh, excellent podcast, uh, a recent episode with Olivia Catney from the uh, uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, talking about just the sheer hypocrisy. Now everything, you know, Russian is being boycotted and maligned, uh, whereas you know, all the excuses that were used for so many years to uh, protect Israel against even the mildest consequences for uh, its actions, its crimes against the Palestinians have all, have all blown up. Uh, so it, it's just, it is a masks off moment. And it is a moment, I think, in many ways, uh, you know, for me, uh, trying to look at this in a longer historical context, where in some ways, I think, that in the minds of many of the uh, warmongers in the West, they, they see this as a replay of, uh, or, or let's say continuation almost of World War II, that a lot of those people never forgave the Soviet Union for defeating Hitler. I, I really think that there's something to that uh, because the, the one of the key ways that, uh, the uh, far right in Europe whitewashes the Nazis, whitewashes Hitler's accomplices like Stepan Bandera, is to say what the ADL said is that, oh, well, for Ukrainians, you know, they're, they're seen as uh, symbols of anti-Soviet resistance, anti-communist resistance. Who was the an anti-communist resistance? They were Nazis. They were Hitler's accomplices. 
were explicit uh, about it. They were explicit about yeah. it. So yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, in order to, you know, the hatred of the Soviet Union, the hatred of Russia is so strong to the point of um, allying with Nazis uh, 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 tacitly during the, the, the war to some extent in some places, but really explicitly after World War II when the attention uh, turned from defeating Hitler to uh, defeating the Soviet Union. And, and you had that uh, interview with uh, Loki uh, on his podcast uh, recently, Asa, where you talked about uh, really Operation Gladio, which was the, um, the uh, basically NATO's uh, uh, covert effort to create sort of a, uh, an, an, a stay behind armies. So in the case where the Soviet Union would occupy uh, parts of Western Europe, that these so-called stay behind armies would, uh, you know, kick into gear. And these were Nazis that were, were sort of the, the, the people behind these stay behind armies. I want you to say something about that, maybe give a little summary, but I just want to say about, you know, I've been thinking about um, why there is this receptivity to Nazism in Western Europe in the 22nd, in the 21st century. And to an extent, I think it's because the extent to which the Nazis were integrated into the so-called West post-World War II is not well understood by people. The history that we're taught in, you know, in schools is that, you know, the good guys won, the Nazis were defeated, they were tried at Nuremberg and they were punished and everyone lived happily ever after. They completely and, disappeared. And they that. completely yeah. disappeared. When, yeah. In fact, what happened is that, you know, the, 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 the West immediately uh, took in, you know, yes, there were trials of top Nazis and in a way, those trials absolve the West. They, they, they're like pro provide a, I don't want to say scapegoat because those Nazis were guilty, but it was like, we've dealt with all the guilty people. And so, you know, we, we were free to, to, to bring in thousands. The Americans brought in thousands of Nazi scientists uh, to, to, you know, the everyone, it's well known now that the entire Apollo moon program wouldn't have happened without Nazi scientists, but it's even deeper than that. Um, in, the 1960s, very few people remember this. Kurt Kiesinger, the chancellor of West Germany, so the leader of West Germany from 1966 to 1969, had been a member of the Nazi party. Mm. He was a senior official in the propaganda ministry and in the Nazi regime's foreign broadcasting who worked with Goebbels and von Ribbentrop. He was yeah. the chancellor of West Germany. I think the it might have been Mark Amos who said recently on Twitter, that um, the famous Stanley Kubrick film, the character Dr. Strangelove in, in Stanley Kubrick's film, um, who is this sort of parody of a, a war mad um, professor who's trying to sort of warmonger <laughs> war between the US and the United, uh, in the USSR, um, is said in that film in passing to be a former Nazi scientist. And, you know, I, I remember watching that probably in my teens or early twenties. And, um, you know, thinking, 
oh, this is a bit over the top, but like, it, yeah, that's literally true. <laughs> literally <laughs> like that, true. That's what happened. Literally true. When the Bundeswehr, the modern German army, was founded in 1955, remember the Soviets wanted Germany to be neutral, an understandable position after all the trouble that uh, Germany had, had caused. Uh, the, 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 the allies, the Americans and their allies refused. And, and in 1955, the West began to rearm Germany West Germany and founded the Bundeswehr and the Bundeswehr was staffed by um, there were hundreds if not thousands of former Waffen SS officers uh, uh, brought into the Bundeswehr into the modern German army so again Nazis rehabilitated Nazis brought back in and you I think you see this across across uh, the so-called West certainly in the US I mean that and that uh, I, I think we're living with the legacy of that today. Asa, why don't you say a little bit, just give kind of a, 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 a quick summary of, the, of, of some of the, the, the points you made with Loki, because I thought that was just so important, that history. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you say, Ali, this is a really badly understood part of our history. And, you know, I include the left in that, and this is something that I've only begun to educate myself about recently you know the, the history is there you can go out and read it but as you say like it's not taught like same in British schools you know we I, I remember it, you know being brought up in um, schools in South Wales when I was young and everything of course it has the same um, educational program as England um, and everything we're taught is the heroic, uh, you know, effort of the British people to, to defeat the Nazis and the Blitz and, you know, bomb shelters and uh, we'll meet again and all that kind of stuff, you know, which is true. But the, there's another part of the history which is not told, which is that, um, first of all, there's a, especially in Britain, there's an overemphasis on Britain's role in the war, you know. Um, and we weren't taught about actually it was the Soviets, it was the Red Army who did most of the fighting or most of the dying. Um, and that really defeated Hitler. Um, and but, but then there's this more, I mean, to the extent that it was ever mentioned at all, it was mentioned in passing. But then there's this more seedy side of the history that you've started to talk about there, where, you know, after the defeat of Hitler's Nazi regime the there was top elements of his regime that were brought in from the cold so to speak and it was also the West German intelligence so the the founding chief of the West German Federal Intelligence Service which is you know with their equivalent of the CIA um, or MI6 for British viewers and listeners uh, was Reinhard Gellin, who was the head of the Nazi Wehrmacht, uh, their intelligence services on the Eastern Front. So he had all this information about the Soviets, intelligence, inf and he had a whole network, which was initially called the Gellin Operation, which then went on and did many different operations for the CIA around the world. You know, so this, this was what was, in many ways, we saw the continuation of Hitlerism really after the second world war uh, and it and we saw these elements integrated into nato 
And a big part of that, as you mentioned, was Operation Gladio. Operation Gladio was essentially a network of secret armies which were established all over Western Europe, all over Europe, really. It went from Britain in the West until uh, Turkey in the East. Um, and it was established by the OSS, the CIA's predecessor organization, uh, the CIA and MI6. They did a lot of the training um, and set establishing of this really uh, secret terrorist army. And it was, as you said, it was dominated by Nazis. It was um, it, there in West Germany, there was former Nazis, literal Nazis from Hitler's regime who were involved in setting up these secret cells um, in Italy, which is where the name Gladio came from, because the, the the each secret army had its own name, but the Italian one was called Gladio, and the Italian one was the first to be brought to light in a big way in 1990. It all came out in a investigation uh, with the uh, the Italian government. It came out, um, and there was public inquiry and so forth, and it was quite a big story in the uh, European media at the time. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was essentially a secret Nazi army. You know, the, in Italy, it was former Franco, um, it was um, former, um, you know, former followers of Mussolini in Spain. Um, of course, for a long time, Spain was a hotspot of, uh, under Franco, under the Franco regime until 1977, I believe it ended. Um, it was a base. It was an, actually a base, and they did training there for these secret terrorist armies, and uh, uh, the Portuguese fascist regime as well. Um, and what ostensibly what these armies' goal was was, as you said, what they were, were called stay behind armies. And the idea that was justified internally, these were top secret. You know, that, this didn't come out until many years later, but the, the ostensible justification was that they would be stay behind armies to stay behind enemy lines in the event of a invasion into Western Europe by the USSR. But re really in reality, if you look at the studies of this, um, the, the research has been done about it by um, academics and experts by, about the, the Gladio terrorist network is that, that wasn't the real goal. The real goal was actually to target us, was really to target Western populations, was to, was to stop um, the alternative from coming to power, was to stop communist parties from coming to power, essentially, basically. That's what it was about, because they wanted to um, organize fear and they wanted to organize chaos and disorder. And so what happened was these... Um, undercover cells, terrorist cells, they began doing things like um, targeting just mass mass terror, mass bombings, basically bombings and uh, shootings and different kinds of things in different countries, especially in Italy. Uh, it, the, the, the places we know most about where it came out were, were in Italy and Belgium um, and um, France to a lesser extent. All over Europe, there was um, atrocities that were carried out which were actually, you hesitate to use the term, but they were literally false flags. You know, they, they were uh, false flags. We've heard a lot about fo uh, false flags in recent weeks where, you know, it was being said constantly in the Western media that um, Russia was going to carry out a false flag in order to trigger an invasion of Ukraine. Well, that never happened. But, you know, 
and you know sometimes there is some rather bizarre conspiracy theories about um false flags but these things do exist in history so it's essentially the meaning of it is just basically that an attack is made and is carried out an attack is carried out usually a kind of terrorist style atrocity is carried out and then is made deliberately made to look like it was done by somebody else in order to do to incriminate them so in the case of italy for example uh the the bologna bombing 85 people in the early 80s uh, were killed 85 people in the uh, train station in italy uh were killed and it, uh, in this bombing that was done by the Gladio organization, which was these, um, you know, former followers of Mussolini and all these kind of Italian, various Italian fascists who were carrying this out. And then it was made to look like, um, you know, they, they were, they were organized under the auspices of Italian military intelligence. You know, this went to the top levels, you know, this wasn't just like, oh, a few rogue elements. This went to the very top and it was organized by NATO. So it was started by the CIA and MI6, but when then NATO officially came into existence, NATO took on the coordinating role of the Gladio organization. Um, and it, 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 so it, that meant they had access to things like um, Italian police could then cover things up. You know, there was these mysterious investigations that never went anywhere. And it took some things like there was some campaigning judges in Italy who you know, were then threatened and so forth, but some of them managed to get details out about it. Uh, and it's thanks to things like that that we even know about it. Um, I so believe the, the... Rachel Maddow forgot to tell us about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gladio is wild because it, it sounds like something from some sort of thriller or conspiracy yeah. novel or something, but it's the, the, the details of it. The truth is stranger than fiction, really. And the goal, the goal of what, just one final thing to say, the goal of what they were trying to do was, was sort of twofold, where they were trying to create fear for one thing, they were trying to create fear in the in the population where it was a kind of sense of chaos. You know, in Italy, it was called the strategy of tension, where mm. it, it made people feel like they had to turn to the government or even, you know, in some cases, in some countries to kind of push for a coup, that there'd be kind of some kind of coup by right wing elements, as we saw happen in Turkey with the, you know, the military um the military uh, coups that we saw in it in turkey and there was there was claims of soft coups in other countries as well like uh, france um, and secondly it was also to incriminate the left the what was called the hard right. left so there was there was there was certain element of infiltration of, of far left groups like um the red army faction in germany and um the I forget the name of the there was the Italian I think it was Red Brigade something like that yeah. um, that were infiltrated by Gladio elements um, and it the idea was that then they they were implicated in these atrocities and then that by implication was used to discredit the more mainstream communist parties in places like Italy and France um, and other countries in Western Europe which don't forget were very very unlike in Britain and you know in in the US communist parties in those countries came very, very close to, you know, to power, came uh, especially yeah. in the immediate aftermath of World War II, where they formed the basis of the uh, Italian partisans, the resistance to the to to the fascists. Um, they came close to winning the elections after the Second World War. And they, these they kind of things they get like, uh, you know, 25, 30 percent, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. They, these were real contenders for uh, power in 
uh, you know, in these countries. So it, it was about preventing uh, also the left from gaining power through democratic means. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I, I think the last thing I want to say about Gladio is that, you know, um, there's a comment my friend uh, Louis Alday made to me recently, which is that what we're seeing now um, in not so much in Ukraine, but it, here in the, the so-called West, in, in Britain and in, and in the UK and in Western Europe, but in, in Britain and in the US and in Western Europe, um, with the kind of all-out media war there has been on the issue of Ukraine, it feels it, it, what what Louis said that said was that it feels like the victory of Gladio because mm. the target is us. The target of this kind of um, war fever against Russia, um, and the target of this kind of normalization of Nazis that we're seeing, um, it feels like that we are the target of these kind of operations as much as Russia. I mean, a, a really disturbing example of that was posted last week um, by uh, a BBC journalist. Um, and it, you know, it was a BBC video. I'm not sure if it went out on the actual BBC TV, but it went out on their, on his Twitter um, and it got 1.6 million views on Twitter. You know, this is not a marginal thing. And it, um, it was this bizarre video where the BBC journalist Ross Atkins, um, high production values, but bizarre because it was trying to, it, it looked in depth at the Azov Battalion. And it was essentially sort of whitewashing them and saying, well, yes, they, they have Nazis in their ranks, but it's only 10 to 20% of them that are Nazis. And actually they're the best fighters. So therefore you can understand why Ukraine is um, arm, arming and uh, you know, normalizing them. So this is the real disturbing thing to me that we're seeing is this sort of normalization of Nazis in 2022. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And, and I think all this war fever and the, 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 the flag waving and all, all of this has the effect of just fogging people, yeah. people's vision to some of the serious uh, geopolitical consequences to uh, to some of this, which uh, you know, will be devastating to people all over the world. Uh, already, there are warnings because uh, Ukraine and Russia are the two uh, among the biggest. Russia is the single biggest uh, wheat exporter in the world, and that's, by the way, a recent phenomenon. Uh, you know, in the eighties, the U.S. Uh, you, the USSR, the Soviet Union, had to import huge amounts of grain from the United States. Um, now, Russia is the world's biggest grain exporter, uh, followed by the United States, and then Ukraine and Canada, are, you know, they're in the top five. And many countries in the world depend uh, on, you know, many countries in Africa, in Asia, depend on grain from Ukraine and from these countries. Uh, the uh, energy situation in Europe, I mean, this is like the, 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 the Americans are so happy with this because, you know, the natural thing for Europeans to do is to trade with Russia. They're on the same continent. Russia has massive natural resources. And uh, 
Europe is, you know, what is it? 40% of its uh, gas comes from Russia. Well, now they've said we're going to cut off all Russian gas, you know, within a few years, maybe sooner if they're not willing to pay in rubles. But, you know, we're going to, and we're going to start, you know, they've signed a deal that you has signed a deal with the United States to begin importing liquefied natural gas from the United States. First of all, that's not going to happen overnight if it happens at all, because the infrastructure isn't there. And secondly, it's a very expensive process because you have to uh, extract the gas through, you know, fracking or whatever horrible processes they're using in the United States. Then you have to liquefy it, which is an expensive and energy intensive process, ship it across the Atlantic in container ships, and then uh, deliquify it on the other end and distribute it. So you have to have all this infrastructure, new distribution networks, terminals, etc. Uh, an and, and the you know from what I, I'm not an expert in this field, but from some of the the stuff I've read, the American gas will be at least twenty percent more expensive than Russian gas, which just comes out of the ground and then flows through a, a pipeline. But this makes uh, the US uh, makes Europe even more dependent on the United States, even more dependent on NATO and Gladio and all that, because uh, Europe is cutting itself off from its natural trading partner, which, which would be Russia. And then the, this is not a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing or a bad thing, I suppose, depending on your perspective and where you sit. But the, the freezing of Russian reserves by the West, by so-called sanctions, uh, and by the way, this isn't the first time because we've seen other official enemies have their reserves frozen or stolen, not least Venezuela, whose assets were uh, stolen by the United States and handed over to the US-appointed so-called president of uh, Venezuela, Juan Guaido, but also the Bank of England, which confiscated Venezuela's gold reserves. And the signal that this is sending to uh, countries all over the world is that the dollar and the euro and, and the British pound are not safe havens that people thought they were because you, you, know, you put your reserves or your money in a place you think will be safe and secure and that when you need it, you can pull it out and use it. And what people are learning, what countries are learning instead is that if you put your uh, reserves in British or American or European banks, and then you have any kind of dispute with those governments, they will just uh, steal it from you. And so the, the, it is accelerating, I think, the uh, move towards alternative forms of reserves and currencies, whether it's uh, you know gold or whether it's uh, the, the Chinese currency or the ruble or whatever it is, to create more uh, independence and to circumvent the global financial and banking systems that, that since World War II have been completely controlled uh, by the West. It will also probably encourage more uh, trade that does not go through or depend on the West. But let's also be very uh, sanguine that none of this, you know, there's no guarantee that any of these global shifts happen smoothly. 
and, and people all over the world are likely to suffer. I mean, even Joe Biden said the other day, there's gonna be food shortages. Food shortages in the 21st century, global food shortages. What does that mean? Uh, what, you know, what will that mean for people all over the world? What will it mean in terms of political stability and unrest? I mean, how innocent and naive we, we may have been a couple of years ago thinking, oh, the pandemic is a big enough challenge that it's going to bring the world together. You know, we're all in the same boat and we can all see, you know, you know, all of humanity is, is, is uh, uh, vulnerable to the same threat. And here we are two years later, and this is the situation we're in. Uh, it is uh, in the 90s, all the talk was about globalization. And now we have really deglobalization happening. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing in many ways. Uh, the, people are talking about a return to more local economies, more regional economies, more regional and sustainable supply chains and agricultural chains. And all of that may ultimately prove to be a good thing. But in, in the short and medium term, uh, you know, the, the, the risks and dangers for the world are immense. and um, and I think it, it traces back to the unwillingness of the so-called West to let go of its hegemony. You know, they, they, they just want, you know, it's like, we have to have it. If we can't have it, we'll smash everything up. And, and the view that everyone else is a threat, China is a threat, Russia is a threat, uh, you know, a, anyone else rising up is a threat. This Manichaean zero-sum view of the world that has been so dominant in the so-called West is, is just very, very uh, destructive. And, uh, you know, it also comes along with a, 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 an alarming dose of uh, Nazi whitewashing as well. Ugh. Um, finally, let's, uh, let's talk about how people you know, with all of this information um, and with this, you know, very American and very European tendency to divide um, a, a conflict or a situation into good versus evil, you know, um, support this guy, condemn this guy. When in fact, of course, as we know, this is, it's this, this binary sort of system is, um, is destructive and it lets hegemonic powers off the hook, um, especially when they get to dictate which side you should choose. Um, what's what's your advice to people who, um, you know, are are trying to um, confidently, um, you know, analyze what's what's happening um, and you know and and knowing that. That, that picking aside because Rachel Maddow or Joe Biden or Jen Psaki says to um, may not be what you, you know, like what you feel in your gut is, is necessarily the right thing, but you want to, um, you know, be confident about what's going, how do we look at what we're seeing in the media and, and what's your advice to people? I mean, what, what I can say is, you know, as, as Asa said, and I can identify with this, it took me a long time to unlearn a lot of the stuff I thought I knew. Yeah. You know, I, to, to a great extent, you know, I, I, I was, you know, lived 
all my life in the so-called West and accepted many of the fairy tales that we were we were told and that you know I, I grew up in a period when World War II was the dominant cultural uh, narrative or phenomenon and everything was World War II movies and World War II stories and and it and and then I and there was a reason for that as well you know because there was a lot of truth in it and and sure, of course. you know, and so uh, uh, that means that you know these imperial. That's the reason that these imperialist powers have used these narratives because they are so powerful, and they sort of yeah. twisted them into their interests. Yeah, abs absolutely, of course. Uh, you know, of course, like uh, you know, it, it it was so easy because it was you know it, it was good versus evil when you look at when you look at it in terms of 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 the European continent and Hitler. But the, the story we were not told and we're, we're never taught was, well, you know, Churchill was Hitler to, to, to the people of Iraq and India. Exactly, Britain yeah. was Hitler yeah. to the people of Africa. Yeah. Germany was Hitler to the people of, of, of Namibia long before Hitler was even yeah. born or, or, right. or when Hitler was in, in diapers. Yeah, Belgium uh, carried Belgians out a Holocaust. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so, you know, the, the good, after World War II, after World War Two, when you know the, the so-called good guys won, the, what were the French doing in Algeria? Right. What yeah. were the Dutch doing in Indonesia? Right. These yeah. these parts of the story, you know, if you only look at Europe, you can tell a, a, a simple tale of good versus evil. When you look at it from the from a, a more global perspective, it, it it's it's not quite uh, quite such a clean picture. But what I want to say is it took me a long time to unlearn some of this. I, you know, I, I think back to when I was in university at the time of the 1990-91 Gulf War, when it was the same kind of propaganda, it was the same kind of uh, war fever. And we've seen that again and again. We saw it with Yugoslavia in the 1990s, with, uh, with uh, Iraq again, with Afghanistan, with Libya. Uh, you know, ca catastrophe after ca destructive catastrophe with Syria, where the yeah. West there's a lot of parallels between Ukraine and yeah. Syria. Yeah, you know, the moderate proxy war instead of moderate rebels, we're now seeing moderate Nazis. Right. Exactly. So you know, all that is to say that you know, I don't have a magic formula, but I, I do. I do think that people have to be willing to be skeptical willing to question and i acknowledge how difficult it is in this information environment where we are being flooded and bombarded with propaganda i've never seen the media more propagandistic yeah. the bbc which which i grew up listening to and used to be you know i i don't want to romanticize it because it was always uh, you know it wasn't ever perfect but you could you could rely on it. You could rely on the information. You know, even if it was sometimes filtered through uh, a a uh, you know a a British or a colonial prism or whatever it was. People trusted the information, and we listened to it for that reason. Particularly the World Service. I remember listening to the World Service on shortwave during the uh, 1991 Gulf War. There was no internet at that time. I was a college student in the United States. And the American television was just all, you know, basically cheerleading for the war and propaganda. So if you wanted to know what the Iraqis were saying, to know what the rest of the world was saying, 
you had to listen to the BBC. And the only way to do that was via shortwave. I, I still have my little shortwave radio and I had a huge antenna and I strung wires up around my room so I could get decent. I had all the BBC shortwave frequencies memorized. Uh, you know, early in the morning, you had to listen to this frequency. At midday, you had to listen to this frequency and so on. <laughs> when the weather, I knew, I knew what weather would give you good shortwave <laughs> Uh, reception on kids don't they, understand the struggle today these, <laughs> don't these, understand are, it. Th these are lost skills yeah <laughs> but no nowadays uh you know the 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 bbc is part of the uh propaganda machine yeah. in a way that i've never seen before. i think it's a lot more crude now you're right yeah it's yeah. a lot more it's a lot more crude it's it's and 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 that so where do you turn when we have a censorship on social media we have uh, the the governments and uh, and their tech oligarchs blocking access to uh, media that they consider disinformation. It's very difficult, and yeah. so you know, I I just think we have to maintain our skepticism, maintain our questioning, continue to be willing to listen to independent media, and hopefully more people come to have a more critical and thorough and in-depth understanding uh, of, of the world we live in. And uh, of course, people should read uh, the Electronic Intifada and read some of the articles and resources. I've always wanted to do this, that we're going to link down below. <laughs> also like and subscribe. Yes. Like and subscribe. And don't forget to like and subscribe. And donate. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you for that. And and yes, we will um, obviously have all the links on the blog post that accompanies this uh, episode. Ali Abunima, Asa Winstanley, um, thank you for this uh, special episode of, um, of the Electronic Intifada podcast. And um, we will have you back on very soon, Ali. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.